Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It's a way to get your message out on the internet to people who like books. It's an advertising network. It's a conglomeration of sites. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a bunch of great literary sites. You go to litbreaker.com and you find out how to advertise on all of these sites at once. It's a way to get your message out to literate human beings. Litbreaker.com. It's an online advertising network for bookish people go and advertise on it oh my god you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful Jesus, what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there and now here's your host Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, all right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate that. My guest today is David Shields. This is his second appearance on the podcast, I believe. At least his second. And uh, he has a new book out called, uh, get ready for it, Other People, Takes and Mistakes. It's available now from Knopf. David Shields in just a moment. How could I resist having him on when his book is called Other People? It just makes sense. Uh, speaking of making sense, or speaking of uh, not making sense, I was pondering just moments ago before I uh, turned the microphone on whether or not I should start a blog. As many of you know, I've been absent from social media or largely absent for the past uh, six weeks or so. I've stopped consuming the internet as entertainment. I've been le leading a very uh, austere existence compared to my old ways. I'm basically Amish. I'm not trying to sound sanctimonious. It's just what I'm doing as a, a measure of uh, sanity preservation. So it, it occurs to me, though, with all of this free time, or I'm, I'm trying to think of ways to maximize time or make best use of time do things that have uh, value, you know what I'm saying? As opposed to just spinning my wheels. So I was thinking, should I start a blog? Should I do a daily public diary? Would that be worth anything? <laughs> or is that the very embodiment of spinning my wheels? It's hard to say. Um, I asked my Twitter followers. I do use Twitter 
sporadically for uh, work-related purposes, or I try to. And uh, I did take a poll. And so far we have six votes. I just put this up. I have six votes, and there are... Uh, here, here are the results. 33% say yes. 67% say no. But it's early. And who's to say I won't do the exact opposite of what this poll tells me to do? I feel like right now is the time for a uh, blog revival in America. I'd like to think we could all agree on that. My guest once again is David Shields. He's the author of uh, several books, including Reality Hunger. I think we had him on, uh, or I had him on to talk about that several years ago. And now he is back. I'm a big fan of his work. And it was a great pleasure to get to meet him for the first time in person. So here he is, folks. This is David Shields. His new book is called Other People, Takes, and Mistakes. And it's available now from Knopf. This is David Shields. I was born in L.A. You know, I lived until I, I was six or seven. Then we moved to San Francisco. And I've lived here, again, as an adult, often for a year or two, for a variety of reasons. To, I worked on the Salinger Project here for a year. Uh, two different girlfriends in L.A. Why, why I, I here for the Salinger Project? Well, the fellow who did the documentary film oh. is based here. Gotcha. And we came down here to work on the book together. For I, I was staying at, I forget the hotel off of... Of I stayed at the same hotel for nine months in the same room. Wow. It's crazy. <laughs> but, um, and then, so I've, I've lived here in the 80s and 90s and 2000s for a year. It's a funny thing for me. Yeah. But you, you like, you have like memories of it from when you were oh, a child. Oh, God, yeah. You know, I grew up in Griffith Park, and uh, which of course is hugely different now. And um, I've lived in the Palisades. I lived in North Hollywood lived in Santa Monica. So I definitely know LA. It feels very, very familiar to me. And you don't have like a, do you have like a, cause people from San Francisco tend to hate Los Angeles. I hate that. I hate that. I mean, LA, I mean, that's so tedious to me. To me, it seems so 1957 or something. I mean, the condescension that somehow, I don't, it doesn't make any sense. LA is this huge engine of world culture and the idea that San Francisco, I mean, San Francisco is a huge engine of world culture too, but it's like, I don't, I never dug that thing. It's I mean, like, if I had to live somewhere, LA, San Francisco, I think I'd live in LA just because it's, it interests me more. I'm not a tech guy. I'm a, I like stories, you know? Well, we were just talking before we came on about sixties uh, culture. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, uh, how sixties culture, all the seeds that were planted back then, manifested uh, you know you see it in silicon valley you see how the 60s counterculture begot uh you know steve jobs yeah, exactly. and apple and all that kind of stuff like it really is even the a, fact that it's named apple yeah. is to me an echo of course of the beatles i think well me. and also like steve jobs was like a, i just read his biography not too long ago he was the like isaac a, thing isaacson thing yeah he was like a fruitarian who worked in an apple orchard as like a hippie at on a commune he was, and dropped out of reed and yeah so, yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, I, one wants to be wary of being too self-righteous about it, but the ways in which the 60s became Silicon Valley is of somewhat 
you know, it's a negative trajectory. The idea that somehow Apple or Stephen Jobs is some kind of visionary or radical or revolutionary is nonsense. You know, he's a salesman, you know, whatever. He didn't even do the tech on it, you know. Wozniak did. And, you know, he's a, it's an elegant machine. Like, that's very different than political revolution. Or sainthood. Yeah, exactly. And, um, as you probably know, Mona Simpson is his half sister, and she teaches at UCLA. Oh yeah, you yeah. know that whole funny, fat, fascinating it's overlap. A talented brood. Something's happening in that DNA. I know you mean that father. That I think absent father or something. Yeah. But um, yeah, LA that interests me. Or even I'm I'm disappointed to hear from you that in a way, this book that you are reading called the Harvard Psychedelic Club that in a way they were the the germ maybe of the 60s because i really think the 60s happened and started here on the west coast you know as an la and san francisco baby like for me it, it did to me the the center of the 60s was san francisco the bay area it wasn't new york or cambridge well, to me and so many I have, I have a sort of corny defensive thing about the east and the west where you know to me all great ideas come from the west and have over the last 50 years and the east just you know in a sense, just markets them. Well, you know, people can think outside. I mean, it sounds pretty cliche, but people can think outside the box out here. You're not as confined by tradition or something. But I, I think that's really true. Like, I was thinking that even just the few hours I've been in L.A. And, you know, I live in Seattle. And, you know, I, I, I live because I have a really good teaching job there. And it's a place to, to live and read and write. But there is, you know, sometimes I ask myself why. I wound up there. It wasn't my goal in life to live in Seattle, though it's a perfectly good place to live. But I do think if my work has become interesting, which I hope it has, I don't think I've become the writer I've become living in Boston or New York, especially New York, in which the commercial imperatives are pretty real. And there's such a group think, I think, in, in New York about what constitutes a good book and I'm obviously obsessed with demolishing those ideas. Yeah. And I do think there's part of me, as much as I resist it, I'm hugely a Western writer in a way, not a la Gary Snyder, but a la, say, Bukowski in a way, or basically a whole fuck you Vogue. That matters hugely to me. I'm giving a talk at USC on Wednesday called The Value of a Work of Art Can Be Measured by the Harm Spoken of It, or... The business of literature is to blow shit up. And I just, that's a that's line. That's a good title. <laughs> it is. It's a line of Richard Nash's, the last half of it. But, you know, I'm hugely wedded to a, where, a what feels like maybe a Western or punk or beat notion of, you know, the only way for French art to move forward is to first burn down the Louvre. You know, there's this famous line by a painter about France and the... Um, I think the late 19th, early 20th century. And I'm, anyway, there's part of me that, geography is a weird ambivalence for me. It's, it's live for me. Like it punches my buttons. It gets me going. Cause part of me loves the East coast and, you know, I'll be there in a couple of, of weeks. And part of me finds it a death knell, a museum, a cornball palace of, of received wisdom and you know and anyways. this is this is where you were born totally this is where you were born and, and raised. raised in san francisco from you know seven to 18 then went to college on the east coast grad school in the midwest and then 
I lived in New York for uh, about 10 years after college, and then I came back to the West Coast, early 90s. And I feel like you have been on a tear for the past decade. Like You, you are very prolific. <laughs> You're putting out a lot of books, and they're all really good Thanks, Brad. and interesting. Uh, do you, have you always worked like this? Well, I think there's a lot of factors. One, as you know, my joke is, you know, people say, you know, you seem like you're sort of productive. And I say, well, they're all short, they're all collaborative, and they're all plagiarized, you know, which sort of, you know, that there's a tiny element of truth there in the sense that, you know, I was sort of looking at the bios, you know, that my first 10 books, which took me about 30 years to write a book every three years were all solo written. You know, they're just me, which is, I guess even that's a misnomer in the sense that I didn't just write them in the sense like a book like reality hunger is obviously full of other people's quotes, even a book like black planet. I don't know if you know that book where it's full of quotes from the players. The Ichiro book is a, a remix of his quotes. Um, but you've got to do all that reading. I mean, I think it's like, like it's, reality hunger is the, it feels like the, the end result of a great deal of deep reading and thinking. Totally. Like I sort of resist people who say, oh, what did you do with reality hunger? Like have this idea. And then you just went to your shelves and found quotes. It's like, you've got to be kidding. You know, that book, in a way, someone asked me how long it took me to write that book. I, I said quite seriously, 30 years, because that's a lifetime of reading, which weirdly consolidated for me into that book where variety of reasons, which I've probably spoken with you about, whereby I was frustrated by the language of the culture surrounding, quote, memoir seemed unbelievably banal. I was, was hugely frustrated by, frankly, my teaching situation in which there's no nonfiction track at the university where I teach. And I was surrounded by people who didn't basically believe in what I was doing. And as a way to kind of own, as they say, the aesthetic out of which I, I was working, I developed a course packet. And year by year, I made the course packet into this book. So anyway, to swing back to the earlier question, like I, it is weird that over the last seven years, 2010 to 2017, I've published 10 books. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, it's not, it's like a book and a half a year on an average. But, you know, three of them are co edited anthologies. Still, though, still, though. And so here's a question. I think it's for... coffee. I, <laughs> I never drank coffee before. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, and you also come from good uh, DNA. Your father lived to be 99 years old. Almost 99. Almost 99. He was obsessed with hitting 100 and, and was just crushed. So close. Did. I know. But still, I mean, the guy didn't even go to a doctor until he was, what, 95 years old, practically? There's probably a certain poetic license I take. But yeah, he was this crazy health nut. He he was born in Brooklyn and lived a lot of time in L.A. and San Francisco. You know, he would win tennis tournaments at age 91 that kind of guy you know it's kind of this maybe you have a little bit of that i well, know you i know you claim to be more frail than he, right but you might have some of his vitality well i think i have something i mean i i'm fascinated by apparently there's a strong r- relationship of parental depression and child creativity there's this whole study they did at the iowa writers workshop decades ago in which they tried to study if there was anything striking about the brains of supposedly semi-creative people at the Iowa Writers Workshop, say, in the 70s or something. They found to a staggering degree a strong history, I think, actually, of father's depressions. Hmm. And it's almost like I have my father's mania phase, but I don't ever hit... But he was quite seriously bipolar and you know was in and out of mental hospitals his whole life which i've never written about as fully as i might have i sort of allude to it but don't ever i've never gone into it chapter and verse but anyway there's a sense in which i do have some of his verbal mania he was quite a good stand-up comedian like he was very verbal and very funny and very Manic, and there's a sense in which maybe as you know, I'm 60 now, I'm not going to enter my David Milt mania phase. And I also think I'm just sort of, you know, this is it, this is the run, you know. And I feel like, um, partly is that my teaching job is such that I teach a little bit less than I did before. A while ago, I would teach, you know, nine courses a year, and I teach, you know, only four months every year, and you know that we've raised our daughter and, you know, I'm very aware that very few people write anything good after say 75. I mean, you can almost count on your hand, your two hands of those people who've written a good book after 75 or certainly 80. And I don't know, I'm aware of, you know, time, you know, and I have a lot of material that I'm interested in and I want to, a lot of it feels oddly like post-reality hunger echo in a good way for me. It's like, I do think that book is clearly, you know, a marker in my... Well, I, I want to ask you because, you know, you talk about this this burst of productivity that you've had in your 50s, basically, the past seven That's years. That's a good point. Um, did you always know what your identity was as a writer? Or do you feel like it crystallized with the publication of reality hunger and that maybe gave you some energy you know what i'm saying like it was interesting like once you defined it and you and you publicly defined it it. this is who i am Uh and you i mean it makes sense to me that then that would lead to uh heightened productivity that's i mean that's a you know a persuasive back formation i'm not sure i felt it on my nerve endings i think there's a variety of reasons i think in a 
like in sort of a boring way. Not that that book was such, but you know, people did, people still argue about that book. You'll see an article a month ago that would be about, you know, yay for the book, boo for the book, whatever. <laughs> right. It's a, a book that weirdly bothers people or excites them. Like, you know, I constantly get emails from someone said, thank you. I read your book. I never realized one could, could write like this. And someone says, you know, why aren't you in jail or whatever? So I, I get those <laughs> constantly, you know, every week. That book somehow just... Well, it forces, you to ha to, it forces you to have an opinion. There's a wonderful thing that... I love what George Saunders said. They asked him if, if my book had had a... If Reality Hunger had had an effect on his current book called... What's it called? Lincoln, Lincoln and the Bardo. Yeah. And he had a, he had a, a clever... You know, he's always very clever and funny and smart. He just said something like... You know, he's just said that he had read Reality Hunger. He found it challenging. He didn't agree with all of it, of course, but that he found... It was a very generous thing. He said, it's hard to read me without having your laziness challenge. I thought it was a very generous thing to say. And perhaps the book has challenges my own laziness. Having said these rather outrageous things about how bored I am by the conventional novel, how weary I am of generic categories, how much I want 21st century to embody new art forms, how much I want us to think about copyright in different ways. There is a kind of funny pressure or burden to say, okay, prove it. And I feel like there's a, not consciously, but there is a sense in which book after book of mine is me saying, see, it looks like this. See, it looks like this. It looks like this. It looks like this. I know I'm right. I know I'm right. <laughs> Fuck you all. And, and you it know? hasn't changed. So nothing, since the publication of Reality Hunger, you're perspective on this stuff has not wavered or been altered by anything like you. I mean, I don't want, the point isn't to me to stay in place in the sense like, yes, I discovered capital T truth at age, you know, 54, and I'm just going to keep on blathering the same point over the next 26 years. Like, no. And I feel, I think, but I do think there's a book, like, I don't know if you ever saw, Brad, that book of mine called That Thing you do with your mouth, the sexual autobiography of Samantha Matthews right. book I wrote with my cousin. I don't know if I sh sent that one your way. I don't way. think you I don't sent know if you it saw to me, but one. I know, I, you know I'm, but I'm aware a, of it. Yeah, it's an interesting project. In a way, it's not a, like, why would I do that book? To me, I was trying to show what I think of as how exciting nonfiction could be. I, you know, I remixed 800 pages of my cousin's monologue about being a translator from Italian into English in a Barcelona film studio of Italian porn that she would do the voiceovers of the various grunts <laughs> and heaves. It just seemed to me too perfect. And so I said, you know, like, this is how interesting art can be. This is, it's only a 110 page book and McSweeney's publishes this beautiful little red book it's just a person burning down the ground in front of you. But anyway, I think at first, after publishing Reality Hunger, I felt sort of guilty or like, oh, my God, what have I done? Have I ruined my life? Because some people really hated me and hated the book. You know, people throw me out of bookstores. They throw me really? off NPR stations. Really? Oh, yeah. People threw, well, like, what happened? Like, I was in a New Hampshire bookstore, and I was saying that I don't care about indie bookstores. I don't... Like for I, and they go, you're gonna have to leave. I said, <laughs> like I said, you know, NPR doesn't, 
you know, indie bookstores. It's books that matter to me. I don't care if you read them on a Kindle, like this whole kind of culture of warm blanket, NPR, indie bookstores, friends and novels, you know, this kind of corn, it's kitsch, you know, it's not art. Art, you know, that Kafka thing that I quote endlessly of, you know, books and acts to break the frozen sea within you. I believe that to the, you know, the bottom of, of my toes. And all this sort of art as whatever you want to call it, Oprah Nation or whatever, that's to me as much the enemy as, I mean, that's not art to me. I mean, it's art. It's not. It's very Philistine art or whatever. Hmm. Not always. Plenty. Oprah's chosen many wonderful books. But um, what's my point? Where were we going with this, Brad? A well, bit, I'll, I'll, you know, about... I do think that my aesthetic has changed. Like, I'm currently, I'm working on a book, which I could see actually be published as, God forbid, a novel. Whoa, that would be like a revolution. I know, because I feel like I'm like, okay, like a friend of mine was saying, what are you working on? A collage meditation. I kind of go, yeah. It's like, I go, uh-uh, I don't want to become that predictable to myself or the reader. And so I have this, I do think, I mean, there is enough invention in it that it could easily be called a novel. Well, and I just want to say, like, I would say this, because for anybody out there listening who um, might feel like uh, a book like Reality Hunger, which stitches together quotes from other sources, uh, might be easy to do. I feel like there, I, I feel like people who would think that have never tried it in the same way that like writing minimalism as a style tricks you into thinking it's easy sure because i've tried to do collage well you have done i mean as as you know not to uh enter the mutual admiration society but i'm a huge fan of your book board which i think does a beautiful job of stitching that stuff together and i'm sure you found that uh the cool thing about it is collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled people take a look at your book say bored or reality hunger and think okay brad just printed out 600 paragraphs or david printed out 600 paragraphs and they chose the ones they like and it's like you have got to be kidding do you have any idea how much work is involved in creating a work of collage that has real intellectual and emotional momentum but doesn't tell you how it got there. Right. To me, I think of collage as almost you know evolution beyond narrative because it has momentum, but it doesn't show you what the momentum is as opposed to you know who killed Roger Ackroyd. I mean that's easy momentum, but to have a book like which I hope that a book like say Reality Hunger or Remote or bored, or, or whatever. Uh, or have, other people. Yeah, I think of this book, I mean, it'll be interesting, because this book's publication date is tomorrow, and we'll see if people read it as just an omnium gatherum, if that's the way you say it, of, you know, of 70 essays. I think of it as a real book that has a real weave to it, has a real argument, and I don't. it'll be interesting if people read it that way. Well, you're collaging your own work. Exactly. Like, you know? I'm, I'm my own... My own DJ. And so I want to talk to you about this book. First of all, I have to compliment you on the title, since you're on the Other People podcast. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's definitely a major echo. There you go. I, would I have come up with that title without yours? Perhaps not. So um, that's, It's almost like I had to be on the show because of I mean, I, couldn't, I could not there say no. There you go. So the book is structured. You talk about the way that it's a weave. It's divided into sections. And you, uh, you write a lot about your father at the front of the book. 
uh, help me out. You write about um, a lot about show business, people in the culture who are of interest to you. You have a you have a very uh, strong gift for making uh, Bill Murray make sense to me. Mm-hmm. You made uh, Charles Barkley's appeal make sense <laughs> to me, and I have more to say on both sure. in a moment. But thank you. Talk about how you structured it and how you sectioned it off. That's, I mean, that would be a long discussion. I'll try and do justice to it in a relatively brief time. But, you know, the book is, as you say, called Other People, Takes, and Mistakes. And that's a real title in the sense that, it, you know, I think I was, was looking at, at some early pre-publication review. I think it was a relatively positive review, but they said, this is a kitchen sink compendium. It's like, no, it's not. You know, it's a really carefully structured and organized and curated book that, you know, has, first of all, it has that, that title, which means to put huge pressure on an idea, you know, can we understand someone else? If we can't, why don't we all jump off a bridge? Because if you can't understand another human being and we're all trapped within our own space helmets, why even bother, really? That sounds awfully lonely to me. And so to me, the book is a relatively careful journey, I hope, through these five big rubrics, men, women, athletes, performers, and alter egos. And there's a really beautiful epigraph from Philip Roth, a very long quote. It's a big one. From his, I think it's from an American pastoral, where he talks about how we always get people wrong, that life consists of getting people wrong. Then we try really, really hard and we get them wrong again. It's really quite, (laughs) quite beautiful. And in a way, if the book works for patient readers. It's not just, you know, okay, I like the Murray essay. I like the Melendez essay. I like the Balban essay. I like the Cobain essay. I like the one on, on women wearing glasses. Like, okay, great. But what is the work I'm doing? And for me, you know, it's, I feel if the book is working, there's a kind of thematic baton being passed from essay to essay and section to section as I try to figure out, in effect, who I am, how I live through other people, how other people live through me, how in a way the part of myself I like the most is how bottomlessly interesting I find everyone else. Like I think, I think there's a school of thought that misjudges my work as oddly self-involved. I couldn't care less about myself per se as a subject. Well, and I think, and I think this book is an attempt to wrench that around. Well, I was going to say like, you know, like a mark of writers who, you know, maybe they write about themselves, but to me, when somebody writes as honestly about oneself as you do, that's a mark of generosity. I I don't know. I never fall for the argument that that's like solipsism or navel gazing. I know. Or like that somehow, like I'm trying to think of some writer who writes about the big wide world, like, uh, I don't know who that would be, you know, like say, you know, who writes about World War II, like somehow they're more generous souls. Like one finds one subject and everyone has the same subjects. I'm writing about love and death and war and despair and disgrace and humiliation and shame. Like, and that 
I'm never interested in myself. I, anyway, Brad, I didn't, didn't mean to cut you off. You were going to make an interesting point. I well, thought. no, I just I think that I think that you know we basically agree. You know, just wanted to make sure I pointed out that like just because you write about yourself uh, doesn't make you selfish or self-obsessed. Right. I mean. I don't know. That just seems like too easy of an argument. And I feel like, I mean, if, if you've read enough books, you're bound to have read one where somebody really dives into themselves uh, and uh, delivers um, a deeply satisfying book. You know, like it well, feels t- like it feels like an act of, of uh, real generosity to me when it's thanks. done right. I think that's lovely. I mean, in the sense that every form has its limitation. Movies at their worst to my eyes, are pure sensation. Poems at their worst are only verbal constructs. Novels at their worst are only storytelling machines. You know, this happened, then that happened. And, you know, the essay at its worst, or the personal essay, or the so-called memoir at its worst, is indeed trapped by the self. And in a way, you know, I wrote a book a while ago called Enough About You, Notes Toward the new autobiography, I think it was called. And, you know, I'm hugely interested in marrying myself to a much larger sense of culture and of human nature so that if I am ever writing about, say, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some essay in here in which I am dwelling on myself, say, I don't know, let's say reading my college girlfriend's journal. I don't know if you got to that I one. Got, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, is am I just, well, that's, first of all, it's an essay that's appeared in other, other books of mine, but also. And for listeners who might not be familiar, you read your college girlfriend's journal as a way of trying to, uh, like achieve intimacy. You know, that's a wonderful way to say it. <laughs> it's like, I felt more intimately connected to her in that. I mean, it's a terrible self-revelation. I don't think it's that. I don't know. Some people think it's the most awful thing they've ever done and want to kick me out of, of their New Hampshire bookstores. <laughs> and then other people think like, oh, Christ. And you were 18. I've done far, far worse things. But I I love that idea that I was trying to achieve industry. I think it's exactly right. And, you know, it's a hugely telling self-portrait, I think. And it's also about, you know, larger thematic concerns that run through the book, namely the relationship between language and love. And I think that's this one guy in the back of the book had kind of a generous thing where he said something like, you know, given what the book's about, you would think the book is about how hellish other human beings are. But to him, it turns out, to him, surprisingly, to be about expressing love and i think that might sound a little corny but i do think that's sort of what the book's about well let's let's go to bill murray because uh of all the things you've written this might be my favorite well thanks because we share a love for him like i when i was a kid the earliest movie hero i ever had was him to the point where say meatballs or caddyshack i watched meatballs in a day probably 10 times in a row on a vhs tape when i was a kid sat in my basement and just like it would end and I would just start it over again. Whoa. I begged my mom for the same army hat that he wore in mm-hmm. stripes. Like, I mean, just completely obsessed. Like he was my hero. Like, wow. I did, and and I, I was, did you grow up here? No, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh-huh. So I, you know, I don't know what it was, but it's you explained deep. it to me. Thank you. I mean, and, that's, that's to me, the book is a, a, a raging success. If I explained one thing to one reader, I mean, 
But anyway, I don't know if you had a further thought you wanted to complete before I sort of, of dilated on well, Murray. Well, but. I think it's like, I think it speaks to um, what we were just talking about where, you know, you're looking out at other people and you're defining yourself by coming to understand them. And I think that's how we work, right? We measure, totally. we measure ourselves against other people. We, we want to know what they're like so we can figure out what we're like. It exactly. Makes... No, I think it's a crucial essay in the book. It, it's really one of the anchoring. I mean, it's, it's long. I mean, the book is 350 pages, and that essay is about 30 of it. So it's a tenth of the book in a way. Then there's a long essay on Howard Cosell, a long essay on David Milch. Who's a, who's kind of a mentor and a and a adversary, <laughs> a frenemy as they call him. Here. Right. And he actually lives not far from here. And um, but anyway, the Murray essay is central to the book, and I think you have summarized it awfully well, or also generously, which is it's a legitimate attempt. In a way, it's sort of like a portrait or pro i i've never spoken to murray i was has he ever read it i'm done i mean there's i want how him, could he not have i read want it? to know if he's read it because i think he would really like appreciate i think he it. would too like i was i'm working with it was a beautiful response i i work on film projects with with my former student at warren wilson james franco and franco read the essay and liked it a lot and he said, I said, he goes, you know, it's all about the distance between you and Murray. That's its real subject. And then he said, yes, you want to be as kind of, I forget how he said it, you know, you want to be as sort of chill as Murray, but don't you think he too wants to be the intellectual writer that you are? Because, you know, he he's... You know, he studied, um, forget that Eastern religion he studied in Paris, um, Gurdjieff. Yeah. And, you know, he's co-written some screenplays, and he's written a book on golf, and he's, you know, he gets in a lot of arguments on every every film set on changing the words, and he wanted, you know, I think among his very best films, of course, is, you know, the to me, perfect Groundhog Day is just perfect to me. And he really hates that film because it's, he wanted it to be more overtly philosophical, but the philosophy is pretty clear. He wanted to, and he often, I think, makes up a lot of the dialogue and thinks of himself as a verbal person. And he's, you know, he's awfully good in ad lib stuff. I mean, it's crazy how good he is, which is, you know, Second City taught. Well, and I, you know, like, so what is his appeal? You know, because like you, you define it in the essay, but... You know, what for, is it? Yeah. For, for somebody uh, like you, for somebody like me, for I think somebody like most writers... Totally. He's kind of the antithesis. Like he embodies this physicality, this fearlessness, this ability to... Um, like there's a great anecdote and I, I may be quoting your essay or I may probably, be quote, I mean, cause I've read every, is, I've watched everything he's ever been in through, you know, 2010. And then I, I've read every darn interview, but so there, there's a Harold Ramis story where Ramis is going, recalling being in Africa. Is this in your I essay? I don't think it's in Africa. I think it's, but anyway, he's like out in the middle of nowhere. I love this story. Tell it. Yeah. So it's heaven. Ramis is like, you know, I'm in the middle of nowhere in, uh, some foreign and country. Maybe, oh Yeah. With Bill with Murray. With Murray. And I think they're making a film, aren't they? Something like that. Can't remember. But Murray goes missing. If I'm, totally. I'm paraphrasing this. But totally. He, he goes missing. Harold Ramis can't find him. And he winds up wandering through the jungle or whatever. And he comes upon Murray. And he's like, they don't speak the language. No. And Bill is standing there 
surrounded by like villagers and he's entertaining them and they're all laughing exactly <laughs> he's like that's basically it like and Mer- and and ramus says you know basically and ramus's line because ramus is hugely more like us than he is like, right or was oh that's right he, he he died early didn't he yeah and they apparently never spoke again well after, i, I want to say they, they, they reconciled yeah. toward the end i believe but i mean you know, that's the embodied life. I mean, it's so enviable. And I think there's part of, of Murray that it's too easy for him. We all do what we can. Like, it's not like uh, Albert Einstein, you know, is never going to be Marilyn Monroe and Marilyn Monroe. I mean, you you, you bring, you know, how, what's the sports cliche? You know, you dance with who brung, who brung you. you. Right. Which I think is gorgeous. You know, it's kind of gorgeous American wisdom. But he, Which is, but Murray kills the moment like for some reason i think of letterman's opening show like 1981 or something he brings do you know this thing murray shows up and does olivia newton john's let's get physical right and does it throughout the whole audience (laughs) you know and that's murray it's like he's and one doesn't want to romanticize him because i think he's an immense again i've never met him Anything I'm saying is speculation, but I think he's an immensely sad, melancholy, depressive guy. You know, his his second wife sued him for being a sex addict. I guess, you know, just, you know, as many movie stars are, you know, endless sexual escapades. And I think he's, again, I think he's, you know, struggle with, I think, alcohol or something. And, you know, he's... I think his humor and charm arises out of a huge well of despair. Sure. And I think the core of the essay is me saying, here's my despair. I've doubled down on it. I've written all these kind of melancholy books about the human condition. I'm really proud of these books. but And I'm actually sort of happy underneath it all. That's my guilty secret. Like, I... I love my life and, and, and love life, and I'm not jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge anytime soon. But I'm not very good at animating joy in person. Yeah. And, and, and Murray can do... Well, it's his gift. It's his gift. But I mean, like the, the thing about it is that it's one thing if he's just like the guy you know in your friend group right. who lights up a room and is the life of the party. But he's famous. For like breaking into like people's softball games and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, he just... The thing I'm trying to get at is that people expect it of him. There's a weight to that. Like, everyone's like, oh, there's Bill. Things are going to get fun. I know. I think you say in the essay, like, he's where the fun is. And that's exhausting, though. It's exhausting. Because it reminds me... I think I say he reminds me of my older half-brother who always wants to be the grandmaster of fun. And it's like, dude, I don't want to be the... I don't want to be fun. He's, he's, He's a classic... Catholic kid from a huge family. I think he's got six or eight siblings. And he's got like six sons. Six sons. That's perfect to me. And to me, part of it is he's so freaking male. Like, Like I'm very, I mean, I'm not sure how androgynous I am, but like I'm very... Unmacho, let's just say. David is wearing five inch pumps just in case you were wondering. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, like I'm sort of, you know... The positive way to say I'm in touch with my feminine side. The the less positive way to say it would be that I'm a a total a total wimp or something. But that Murray seems pretty comfortable with a kind of midwestern. To me, it's very midwestern. 
my wife's from Lake Forest, just the town, a couple towns away from Wilmette, where Murray grew up. Right. And I do this whole thing on how Dave Eggers grew up in Lake Forest, Vince Vaughn grew up in Lake Forest, you know, Dick Cava grew up in Nebraska, Johnny Carson grew up in Nebraska. Nebraska. Um, so many talk show hosts grew Letterman up in, grew the, up in Indiana. Indiana. And know. it's it's deeply Midwestern. And it's, right. to me, hugely unjewish because it's 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 terribly telling that Harold Ramis, you know, who's like, you know, who reads and is very Jewish, you know, even the guy's name and his whole presentation kind of nerdy Jewish director writer who could maybe write I think he co-wrote and directed Groundhog, which I you yeah, know, I'm, I'm, like his masterpiece. I'm not a Ghostbusters fan at all. Like that means me nothing to me at all. Yeah. Like I sort of hate those movies. I, I, yeah, I don't but, like them. Murray, you know, it's not just life and art. I think at some point in the essay, I say something like, okay, I've always loved these books, like Good Soldier, Separate Peace, Gatsby, Moby Dick, Cat and Mouse, which feature a neurasthenic narrator contemplating a physical specimen. And there's a sense in which I'm doing that in the Milchess. He's your Gatsby. There you go. I mean, I, I mean, and he, he also has. That's you also, hilarious. You, you also point out, um, which is very rare for somebody of his star power, like how little vanity he has. I love that about. He's him. got. That's like that's a big. That, that, well, it's key. Yeah. It's key to him. Right. He doesn't care. Like he literally doesn't care what he looks like. And but almost, that's that catches the check though too. Like it's a brilliant strategy, kind of like Pynchon not being known. Like on some level. It's super cool, but he knows if he wears a Hawaiian shirt right. and <laughs> bell bottoms and high tops and has a gut sticking out 40 pounds extra and has that deeply mottled skin and has has lost his hair and hasn't done the hair transplant that, you know, um, you know, LeBron James has. People dig that. Like part of it is very real. Yeah. And that's, but part of it is like that also, that's his whole appeal is that he's the last. And he's aware of it. Oh, he, I mean, again, I'm just guessing. Yeah. But you know, like that's his thing. Like well, it's sort that, of like the way. Authenticity is a virtue, I think. I mean, I would see it that way. But I would say authenticity is a performance too. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to take back my admiration of the of him in the essay, but he's an in like to me, it just kills me that he hasn't gotten back to me on the essay yet. Hello. <laughs> Bill. I'm sure Bill listens to Murray, the show. hello. I mean <laughs> you know, I've, I know people who know him and stuff, but it's like hello, I mean, come on, you got it. but to me that's the key thing. Just like Gary Payton probably never read Black Planet. But you know what? Like if Murray's ever, different. Like he'll come to your house one day. When exactly. You least exactly. It. He'll bring you. He'll bring you like a pie. He'll ring your doorbell. There you go. He'll give it to you and he'll leave. I mean, there you go. That would there be what would happen. I think what thing is that like, you know, I agree with you. I think it's one of the better things I've written, and it started so humbly of of my daughter and me just watching every Murray movie, and she goes, "Oh God, do we have to watch?" You know, <laughs> Michael Jordan to the max or whatever. You know. <laughs> Space Jam. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then slowly but surely, these layers were added to it, and it gets sadder, I think, and more. And I, I do think what you said is, I hope, true of the whole book, which is, it's hugely about 
Murray, it's hugely about me. And if the essay works, it's about the dialectic between the two of us, which then triangulates out to the reader who says, holy Moses. And to the average Murray viewer. Because I think most people dig Murray, or I think most people dig Murray, but I think I feel I don't think most many people have what he has. I think more people have like the more inward attitude at a party, or like the, his ability to light up a room and do what he does is very rare to me. I don't know hardly anybody who can do that. I think of someone that we know who's like that. I mean, <clears throat> there's a, a wonderful thing in a part of the essay where I talk about how Murray's. He claims the best thing he ever did was sit in, I think it was with Steve Stone broadcasting the Cubs games in the early 80s, where I think maybe Harry Carey was ill or something. (laughs) Passed out. You know, and Murray sat in for a game or two. And I have the tapes of that even. I bought them from the Museum of Broadcasting, you know, so I could watch these tapes. And I, I quote them a little bit in the essay and it is so moving how unlike every other sports broadcast you've ever watched in which there's a highly formulaic and upbeat kind of announcing and there's this sort of mission control thing where we're just focused on the game and we care who wins the game the murray will spend entire innings talking about some hot dog wrapper that's floating through the stands <laughs> and he's telling the cameraman like, get that hot dog wrapper. Like, that's the way any of us live our lives. We follow digressions and, you know. He's in the moment. Exactly. He's like, he's. I think I compare him to a schnauzer at one point. Like, he's just, <laughs> you know, just sniffing the air, digging it. You know, and I feel like a lot of my of my work is about, like, I was just looking at some old stuff. And this one reviewer who liked an early book of mine called Handbook for drowning she had this amazing phrase she said this book is about the endemic disease of our time something like the difficulty to feel or something like that and I do feel like for whatever reason I've explored that in my work which in the essay and in general I connect to stuttering I grew up with a really 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 bad stutter and I think it gave me a kind of psychic distance toward language and toward feeling. Not to say that I'm not full of, I hope, of feeling, but it's layered for me through processing language. Is sort of my huge metaphor. And Murray is hugely verbal. And I think I really home in on he doesn't have that particular distance. Yeah. He's right there. And he's very physical. Very physical. Comfortable in his body. And yet he's not by any means a pretty boy. Like he's just a guy. Do you know what I mean? But he has, I think, for women, huge sex appeal because he's so, I don't, you know, not, he wouldn't be conventionally thought to be like, but I think people like to be around him because he is where the fun is. That's right. That's his shtick. So I want to talk to you in a, in a related way. And there's another essay in the book where you talk about Charles Barkley. Mm-hmm. And I have sort of a personal angle on this because I happened to be in a room with Charles Barkley last summer. Whoa. Just randomly. In LA? Yeah, in LA at an event. And he was there and he's larger than life. And he's a big, you know, he's six foot six. And, and he's still big, isn't he? Oh, he's huge. And he's also, he's big. He's probably right. 280. He's Because he, he supposedly lost a lot of weight. And has he kind of come back? Well, he's still big. Right. And he's a big guy. And he's right. a big presence. But 
The reason I, I want to bring him up is because I've lived in Los Angeles for 15 years. I've seen a lot of celebrities sure. just around town. Sure. I've never, ever seen someone who seemed to be enjoying celebrity or more at ease in his own skin. He, he talked to everybody. Whoa. He made it, he made it look so easy. Whoa. And I think of, um, like, tell me how it played out in the sense, like, did he come over to you and say, Hey, I'm Charles or like, what did he do? No. Cause I, I'm like, I'm very reticent whenever I'm, I'm never the guy that's like, Hey, you know, how you doing? No, I'm a I, big I, fan. Kind I of thing. can't do it. I right. can't do it. But he, uh, it's funny because when I was a young kid... Like, how big of a party was it? Oh, it was in a, a room full of probably 75 people. He happened to be in there. He'd had a few drinks. But he'll just talk to you. He is interested in it's you. It's very Murray-like. Yeah. He's very interested in you. And he's not at all uh, self-conscious. He's not afraid of getting cornered. I think a lot of times celebrities feel like, oh, they're all going to surround me. And where am I going to go? And... These are the thoughts that I think I would probably have. You know, sure. He doesn't bother. He's not, does not even at I all bother. I love that. I mean, there's, I mean, I do, I was on the plane down from Seattle to LA today and on the plane was, um, um, is his name? Um, George Clooney, Bradford, Marsalis, <laughs> Branford, Mar- Branford, Marsalis. Yeah. was on the plane, you know, and he seemed more like, the, you know, he wouldn't be as recognizable as Barkley, but, he was very much of that Shire variety. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that would be many people. And I just think to have that energy, you know, and, and granted Barkley had had a few, I think he'd had a few cocktails, right. <laughs> which he often, I think probably apparently. Does. Yeah. <laughs> but that he, I mean, Bar- I, I do quote Barkley in the essay saying there's two ways to go with celebrity. You either can hide in your own damn house or you can enjoy this one life that that we have and he talks about how he was in barcelona or maybe he you know the olympics, for the olympics the in 96 but then also he talks about being he goes and i see he, he he says something like i can't believe that this dumb little kid from leeds alabama is walking around whether it's barcelona or china or wherever and everyone's coming up to me he goes who would have thought? And he goes, who isn't going to enjoy that? And then I say something like, who would not find this likable? Or something like, yeah. I, I say it slightly better, but to me, he's like, he fascinates I me. Mean, I haven't paid attention to him of late. I think he's, but he, the more that we talk, the more Barkley, he, or the more Murray-like he sounds to me in the sense that I do think that what I'm grooving on with Barclay. Well, I think the essay on Barclay is more analytical and less But it's the same rhapsodic. It's, it's the same kind of thing. And you talk a lot about athletes, people who are really comfortable uh in their like that's they're they're completely physical. They're in their bodies, they're right. in the moment. They're not cerebral and locked inside their heads and analyzing everything and thinking it through. You I know, mean there's endlessly. that incredible moment in the Barclay essay where he he's just gotten badly injured and his grandma is with him in the locker room like his grandma's 73 or i forget how old she is but you know that she's in with him the locker room and he's got a very badly torn acl or something and then he says to all the gather reporter he goes well i guess i won't be having sex tonight you know just <laughs> breaking through the fourth wall in sort of a murray like way right you know which isn't the funniest thing ever but it's 
he always says what you're not supposed to say. And of course, and I try to unpack him as sort of, this is as much racial candor as we can handle. I do think he was not an irrelevant forerunner to Obama in the sense that I think, just like a lot of gay characters on network TV shows help, I think, pave the way for same-sex legislation, et cetera, that I think in a strange way, like people like Barkley or even, you know, Will Smith being the president or whatever in, you know, blockbuster movies Morgan or whatever. Freeman. Yeah. yeah, are not irrelevant forerunners. Anyway, the essay on on Barkley is you know, as we're saying, kind of a rhapsody on Barclay's irreducible physicality, but it's also trying to say how interestingly, ambivalently he embodies American racial divide, where on the one hand, he's really good at calling out the hypocrisy of Christian conservatives and the religious right, but he's also very invested in, you know, questioning orthodoxy on the left. Not that he has a worked out political agenda, but you know. Yeah, he'll upset he'll upset anybody. All eyes in the room on TNT. Who would watch basketball on TNT? You're not going to watch it for Kenny Smith or Ernie somebody, Harwell, whatever his name is. You watch it for Barkley to create trouble, chaos, ruckus, a frisson of something. He's a, he's a great broadcaster. He's a great performer to me. I mean, he's yeah. really got serious chops, obviously, as a performer, you know, where, you know, like the camera might cut to him and he's like stuffing his face with popcorn and he'll just start to laugh. <laughs> Everyone else, you know, like is always cleaning up their skin, whereas Murray leaves his mottled skin in place. Everyone else trying to toe the party line, and Barkley says, fuck all that, you know? Right. I'm going to try to be real right now. I mean, the more I talk, the more I see that, you know, again, going back to reality hunger, it's like these guys have reality hunger in spades. Their whole calling card is, I'm going to be real. Yeah. And I swear, I think, I mean, I'm not sure I had made this this connection before, but that I do a lot of these odes in the book, whether to the character actor Bob Balaban, even to Howard Cosell in a way, to uh, John Melendez, who used to be on the Howard Stern show, Milch, sort of in a way, because he was always trying to break through people's defenses. So it's an interesting idea that what what Murray and Barclay hold in common, among many things is a huge devotion to, you might say, the living moment, the ongoing moment, the moment that pops. And the ability to perform within it consistently. That's a good point. You know, improvisationally, just cameras on, lights are on. Boom. Entertain us. Go. (laughs) So um, before I let you go, I want to talk to you um, just to kind of circle back to where we began, where we were talking about how uh, prolific you are and have been, especially these past, you know, seven to 10 years or whatever. Um, you know, a lot of my, uh, listeners are writers or aspiring writers. And I like to ask people about their, uh, work habits. Like, how do you do the work? Do you have a set schedule? Do you write at the same time every day? Are you, uh, seven days a week? You know, like, what does it look like? Mm, you know, it's pretty non. I mean, I, I mean, I wish I had some 
just the kind of work I do, it's not the typical thing in which, you know, I write page one and every day I write a page and at the end of the year you have your 365 pages, then you spend three months revising. And there would be writers like that who would publish a novel every year and they sort of write their novel, you know, like that. But whereas I'm more of a pack rat, a gatherer, a hunter, a collagist. Um, so basically, I mean, I'm trying to think of what advice or thing I could say that might be of interest. Well, for yeah, you. That's, I mean, there are people out there who are interested in, in uh, literary collage. Sure. So like, how are you like, just as, as simple as how are you amassing and organizing your information? Are you a very organized person or do you just have it in a big folder somewhere? And I mean, it's just like, you know, just stuffed in, you know, file cabinet drawers. I mean, the basic way I do it is I think of one idea that won't let me go that in my grandiosity, I come up with an idea that's a metaphor that I think explains the world, at least to me for a moment, whether it's remoteness or black planet or the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead or reality hunger, some core idea about sex or death or love or war, like a, this book I did called War is Beautiful, about war photography, some big idea that kind of holds things together. So once I have some huge metaphor, I just keep on developing a huge stack of pages, my own pages, other people's quotes, emails, I have a whole galaxy of, of research assistants that help me find stuff. And then I develop sort of a three, like a book I'm working on on now, you know, often hundreds, if not thousands of pages. And then I kind of go through it with, and these are, are crucial, colored highlighters. You know, go through and mark up you might say the different rubrics or categories or gestures the book has. You probably did the same yeah. on board. You like in, we almost in, we indexed it exactly. Yeah, it feels it. You know, and then what you do is you know, first of all, you get rid of all of the draws. There's huge amounts of just dead stuff, repetitious stuff, irrelevant stuff. And by the way, I wanted to stop because I don't want to forget. Uh, I had a co-writer on board, Justin Benton. Right. So I feel compelled to mention him. Of course. Him, no, you know? I know what you mean. I try to make sure that a lot of these books are of, I've done of late are also co-authored. So it sounds like we have relatively similar working methods. You're right? highlighting, color coding. You know it by to basically topic or theme. Exactly. And then to me, what you do is you pour each, let's say you have a gesture, I forget, some of the categories of bore, like there's a whole thing on sex, say. Yeah. What what you did, and the thing I I do too, is then, let's say you have a whole category in Reality Hunger on, say, memory. Then you develop those, say, 47 paragraphs into their own little beautiful prose arc. And you just keep on doing that for every trajectory. And then the big challenge to me is always, for some reason, I always find this a big dilemma. Do you keep them in their own silos or do you run it as one huge overlapping symphony? Right. If you see what I mean. Basically, do you go A, 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 B, 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 or do you go A, B, C, D, E, A, B, A, D, C, A, right. B, C, D, E, A? And they both 
can work. Right. Well, it's sequencing. You exactly. Know? It's, 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 it's tricky to do well. And I, I just, for some reason, I just love this form. I could talk about it endlessly, as I already have. And a lot of the books I read, a lot of the books I write, a lot of the books I teach have something like that form. It's like there's something deep in my head that responds to that. Who are some who, who are some of your favorite writers who work in this mode? Like, are there people that really inspire you who, who do this? I mean, for sure. I mean, I have this whole long reading list I call very partial reading list of my 150 favorite books. And if you want, I can perhaps I've sent it to you or I can send I'm, it I'm to sure. you. I'm sure. I think I've actually read you know, it. On some, I think it was up on the Pals Bookstore site at some point. But, you know, if some of, of your listeners would like to see it, we can post it if you're interested. But the thing to me to emphasize, it goes back to as ancient writers like Heraclitus's Fragments to Blaise Pascal's Pensées, all the way up through pretty contemporary writers, whether it's um, David Markson's This Is Not a Novel and the three books after that, Simon Graves', Simon Graves four-volume book called Smoking Diaries, um, Two writers living here in L.A. I, I, or three, many, but um, Bernard Cooper, Sarah Manguso, and Maggie Nelson. Are I just all... talked. I just talked to Sarah. Just a couple. Oh, of really? Weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing her for dinner tonight. So. Oh, you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, give her my best. Yeah, I, I, I'm a, a huge fan of yeah. Sarah, of Sarah because she has her, her brand new book, Three Hundred Arguments Out, That's which what we were I just absolutely about. love that book. I think she's an incredible writer, and I would say she's had an influence on my work. I mean, uh, in the sense that she, I think I was going in that direction anyway, I think toward concision, compression, velocity, and speed. But I think through Sarah's influence, I think I'm really trying to get more and more concise. So many other other writers, Leonard Michaels, Spalding Gray, Marguerite Duras, um, Samantha Hunt, um, you know, I could go on and on. Uh, J.M. Coetzee. Um, There's so many amazing writers who work. And the, and the through line is, is not only concision, but what? Like the authenticity. The... That's a good point. I mean, I don't know if you had an idea of, of what it is. I mean, to me, it's a whole series of gestures. One, of course, is anti-linearity in the sense that it's not, you know... Um, Okay, we've killed the prime minister. You know, like like a Graham Greene novel. It's not. We're not reading for narrative tension. Renata Adler is huge for me. Yeah, her, her she's books, one of your favorites. Speedboat and um, and uh, and Pitch Dark are absolutely life changing books for me, as well as Ross McAwee's film, Sherman's Marks. I don't know if you know yeah, that yeah, film. Yeah. That's a great film. I absolutely love that film. And uh, it changed my writing life, I would say. But um, so, yeah, above all, first of all, anti-linearity in the sense that we're not reading for mere plot, which to me, I just, I find boring. It's not that interesting. Second of all, oftentimes, boundary jumping is as regards genre that we're not sure what space we're in is it memoir is it reportage is it fiction is it confession is it comedy you know like i i love chris rock a lot especially early chris rock and obviously richard pryor etc like i'm really influenced by stand-up so in a way like we're back to murray and barkley in yeah, a sense yeah 
So, and then as you say, authenticity, to me, nakedness. There's a line I just love by Dennis Johnson who says, write yourself naked in exile and in blood. I just think that's so beautiful. The idea of naked and blood, like burn it down. Like I just, I can feel that the writer is struggling to find out how he or she solved the problem of being alive. That's what I read for to me. That seems like a great place to end. (laughs) I just want to add, because it just occurred to me and I'm, I'm feeling like it might be an epiphany. But I, that could be that could be I could be overselling it. <laughs> but when you talk about uh, y- your particular way of working and how you start with a big idea or a problem or something that you right. say seems to encompass uh, the world for a moment, right? Then you work from that, and then you find like, the structure lasts. It seems like an inversion, like a, a, almost a complete inversion of the way that so many writers work, where they they figure out theme last. And they outline first. It almost feels to me like you start with theme and like one of the last things you would do, not that you do it, is outline. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's like you're figuring out the structure towards the end, whereas a lot of people, they try to structure it first. And then later on, it's like at the end of the novel or the end of the book, they sort of realize. Oh, what that's what it was about. Yeah. I mean, there's so much. I don't know if we're, we're probably toward the end of our, our little rope here, but um, I mean, there's so many things I could say there. One, I would say... I th- I feel like I still am thinking through things. Like I may say, I want to write a book about mortality, but I don't truly know what it's about. Like I just have a broad idea. Right. Second of all, I think also I do outline a lot as I go, but in a very idiosyncratic way. Like it's very, you know. It's crazy. It's like a map of... I'm picturing your office. It looks like like the the Unabomber's study. Don't even go there, (laughs) yeah. And then... And then... But I do know what you mean. There's something in me that's sort of top-heavy. Like, friends sort of laugh at me. Like, they'll they'll tell me some vague idea of what they want to write a novel about. They'll tell me it in 30 seconds, and I'll say... Here's what it's about. And like, I go right to the big abstraction, like huge idea, like, okay, it's about the agony of love in the context of violence and without communication. Like, what? <laughs> Why are you saying that? I just told you it's about I just, I a don't girl you... <laughs> getting her first driver's license. What are you talking about? You know, You're it's like, like, I don't want to waste, I don't want to waste anybody's time here. Let's get to the Exactly. Heart of it. <laughs> I'm so impatient. And it's sort of like, like that's both, I would say, my strength and my weakness, I think, because I'm so bored by all that, to me, filler. Yeah. Well, but, I'll tell you what, I uh, I always love talking with you. It's always thought-provoking. Uh, I congratulate you on the new book, and, and I have to commend you for the title. It's a wonderful there title. There you go. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brad. I really enjoyed it. All right, folks, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support it over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod.com. This is a listener-supported endeavor. I count on your support to make this thing continue to churn. That's David Shields. His new book is called Other People, Takes and Mistakes. It's available now from Knopf. 
You can find David Shields online at davidshields.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at underscore David Shields. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. Go to your favorite app store. Search for Other People with Brad Listy. You'll see it. It will be there waiting for you. It's free. If you'd like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. I feel like my delivery is a little bit somnambulant today. Feeling very mellow. I don't know what that is. Everybody in my family is sick except for me. They've all got the same cold. So I feel like uh, skittish. I'm washing my hands constantly. I'm also feeling very arrogant. Because my immune system is superior. Just knocked on wood. I don't know about this blog. I'm not sure about it. I don't know why it occurred to me. I think it's just, if I'm going to do anything on the internet, if I'm going to write any content on the internet, why not write something? I don't know, share like a substantial thought a day or something like that. Not like some kind of extended, uh, you know, long form blog. Just a couple hundred words a day. Or more. I don't know. Am I insane? It seems funny to me to start blogging now. 2017. WordPress.com. Blogspot. (laughs) It's where we are, though. It's time to go backwards. It's time to get old school. It's time to revert. Start a blog. (laughs) 